0: Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is Tuesday, June 30th, um, 2020. Today we had our regularly scheduled Bible study on Hebrews. Uh, We are in chapter 9 and went from... Last week we got all the way through chapter 9 verse uh, 14. So we picked up there and carried on through to the end of chapter 9. It's a little bit, uh, we spent a good amount of time uh, reviewing, and then we carried on to the end of the chapter. So um, with that in mind, uh, I don't want to take up too much time on the intro because there's so much to get through in the Bible study. Um, I will do my best to bump the sound up sometimes for the questions, but just look, just Listen carefully because there was some good discussion. I tried to repeat the questions when I could and get those on the record so that y'all at home or listening on the go on the podcast or whatever can uh, hear what was being said by those who were in attendance. But uh, sometimes, you know, you can only do so much in a uh, sanctuary that has a lot of acoustics. And so, anyways, with that, I will leave it alone and I will. Continue on here. Uh, here is our Bible study this morning on Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. We'll begin now. Let's begin with the word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, you opened. Peter's eyes to see that all of creation is good and is to be used by your people for their delight and joy. Open our eyes to see that our bodies, restored by you in holy baptism, proclaim the goodness of your creative will, that in paradise we will come to the fullness of what you created us to be. Through your Son Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so um we want to do a quick recap of what we talked about last time. Where are we, first of all, in the Bible? Hebrews. Hebrews? We're in Hebrews. We Hebrews 8, I think. Hebrews, we're actually on to chapter 9 right now. Oh, okay. Um, so we talked last time about, well, a few things. You know, what, what, is, what is one of the main things we've been talking about? It's Jesus seeing Jesus in a certain way. High priest. As the high priest, yeah. I could tell in your voice, oh, high priest. Oh, we've been talking about Jesus as the high priest for weeks and weeks and weeks. But uh, there's more to the story stuff out here. So, just a quick recap on last time, which was Hebrews 9, verse 1 through uh, 14, right? We see that in Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14, that there is talk of the first covenant, the, um, how... He's talking about the different parts of the holy place that I gave you last time, this, this uh, picture of the tabernacle and what that looked like. And this, this week I passed out a few things of what it looked like, of, of a rend- rendering of what it possibly looked at looked like in Solomon's temple and then in Herod's temple, the second temple. All right. So we can make some comparisons, see how things kind of stayed the same, how some things kind of changed. Right? Um, I'm trying to see here. Yeah. So we saw how there were preparations um, being that were made for the tabernacle and uh, the Holy of Holies, the most holy. Like, so there's the holy place, the Holy of Holies. There's all, these there's all these different parts. What do those correspond with according to the author in Hebrews? <laughs> um, so if you look at verses eight, verses like seven through nine, roughly, what, what sort of uh, picture is the author of Hebrews trying to bring out by talking about the temple in this way? So there's two different parts, right? What's... What are those two different parts that he talks about? Um. What's that? Yeah, there's the... um, There's the... This up real quick here. The holy place and the most holy place? Right. So there's the holy place, and on your little handout from last week, you also kind of see it on the thing I just just handed out. There's two main divisions inside the temple proper. There's the holy place where the priests would gather to offer sacrifices. You know, there was the showbread, there was the lampstand, the incense altar, and then the veil. And beyond the veil was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, which is where what resided? The Ark of the Covenant, Covenant, right? And uh, I think I also gave you something else that talks about the Ark of the Covenant as well, right? What it actually looked like, um, what the Ark contained, and that's what the author of of Hebrews gets to. Um, But he's saying that the first section... Uh, so he says that um, verse 8 by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age so last time we talked about how the holy place where the priests gather to offer the sacrifices of incense and things like that general prayers and, and whatnot. not the according to the Levitical Code, that stands for the present age. Beyond that, beyond the the curtain, beyond the veil, was the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, was this just some box? What was it? It was the place where heaven met earth. On the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, It was the throne of God, where he would sit and atonement would be made, right? And uh, that's why it was was veiled and covered and everything, because no one could be in the presence of God and live. The only time that someone went into the most holy place was when? On a certain day of the year, which was the day of atonement. Yeah, Yom Kippur, that the priest, the the high priest would go in, but only after he had made atonement for his for his own sins so that he could bring the blood into the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. Now, that being the case, you know, this isn't symbolic that in the Holy of Holies, God the Most High dwelt, right? He dwelt there for the sake of His people, for the forgiveness of their sins. And that is what He's saying here, is that the Holy Spirit indicates that the way the Holy places, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. That is symbolic in that this present age will pass away. That in the end what will be is the new the full the fullness of god's restoration in jesus christ the new heaven and the new earth all this will pass away and the new creation will be fully brought forth right and he says according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So these things um, dealt with external things um, and then but, but could not perfect the conscience. Now, last time I mentioned that it kind of made me think of a certain thing uh, that we hold in very high regard that is a certain washing, which is Holy baptism. 1 Peter 3:21 says for this baptism, for these things correspond to baptism and baptism now saves you, not as a washing of dirt from your body, but as a promise of a clean conscience in God's sight. Right? That is a washing to be all washings because it's not just mere water, but it is water and the word. The the Holy name of God, the triune God, with the word, with the water, is doing the work, right? The word is what's making it all happen. The name of God. Okay? But he says, but when Christ appeared as as, as a high priest... Let me go back here. When Christ appeared as a high priest... um. of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I think last time I, I ended without really getting too far into this, Didn't I? Sometimes I forget what I've said and what I haven't said. So, Um, if I if there are any gaps in this, let me know. But um, it's kind of interesting. Um, There's there's a Trinitarian uh, dynamic of of Christ's past and present work as High Priest, right in verse fourteen. See, how much more will the blood of Christ, this Christ who through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, right, offered himself without blemish to God the Father, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, right? Um, any questions about this? Anything... Y'all see that you have needs clarifying? I know this is kind of silly, but... No, go ahead. Why, why do they take the blood of the goats and the bull, but they take the ashes of heifer? Oh, uh, okay. Why not the blood of heifer? Well, let me see here. that That's getting to some fine points that... Uh, no, it's a good question. Um, there's the ashes. I'm trying to remember. That's 9.13.
1: I I'm don't I'm
0: not sure. So there's, um, there's a little ambiguity here as to what is exactly meant by this. Um, that in the Levitical covenant, there were different ritual washings and I'm trying to see what he says about the ashes, oh yeah what is the function, okay, sprinkling with the ashes of a heifer um, this is from my commentary so, but she asked the question about the ash, the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer uh, in verse 13 so you see in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Uh, from the commentary, Dr. Klein, I, I, I was curious about that myself. I was like, what does it mean, the heifer, the ashes of a heifer? He says, um, it's quite obvious that this refers to the ashes that were prepared from a red heifer that had been offered to God as decreed in Numbers 19, verses 1 through 10. And mixed with water for the purification of people who had become common, quote-unquote, right? Uh, Those uh, people whose holiness had been desecrated by contact with something unclean, all right? So it was the water of purification, and it wasn't just mere water, but it was water mixed with the ashes of the sacrifice, right? Right? it was a way to distribute the sacrifice and sprinkle it onto the people right so it's just another method of purification another ritual washing if you will um, does that answer your question yes Symbolic
1: and four seventy what's that symbolic
0: maybe i didn't look too close into it <laughs> yeah you know there's Bulls and goats and uh, lambs and the heifer. I'm not sure exactly what it was that I'd have to look at Numbers 19 verses 1 through 10 to get the point. But, um, oh, he says this. This water of purification was sprinkled on anyone who had come into contact with a corpse. You see that in Numbers 19 verses 11 through 20. And on Levites. Levites at their installation, Numbers 8, verse 6 through 7. He uh, says, but it is not obvious why this particular rite of purification is mentioned here in association with the blood that sanctifies. Um, it may just be kind of a rhetorical point of the washings and the different ways of cleaning. No, I, well, it might, I don't know. I don't know if it matters about you know whether or not the, the ashes of the heifer were used spe- like only for this, but what he's saying is that for some reason it was mandated that the ashes of the heifer were used for uh, cleaning you know pur- purifying someone who had come into contact with a corpse and to uh, sprinkle it on Levites in their installation as temple priests. Why? I'll save that for another time. I have no idea why a heifer and not a bull. Um, I know there's more there. I know there's a reason why. I just, I'll be honest with you and say I don't know. Younger, under, younger perhaps, and so without sin. What's that? Yeah, well, I, as far as the age of the animal, is that what you're getting at? No, just skip whole Okay. Skip. <laughs> we'll talk later about it, okay? Sure. But there is significance of the age of the sacrifice, the lamb, uh, the Passover lamb being uh, a, a year old, right? It's, it's considered old enough to breed like it's an adult now. So there, there were those kind of aspects that are important. And parts of understanding why the sacrifices would happen with a bull, with a goat, with a sheep, with a, with a lamb, with, you know, pigeons, things like that for those who can't afford the goats and the bulls, things like that. But I'm not going to get too far into the, the weeds there. There is significance there, but I don't know if it's necessarily pertinent to what the author of Hebrews is getting at right now. all instigated by Melchizedek, <laughs> instituted. <laughs> oh, I don't know, maybe. Well, no, this is all Levitical code directly handed down by God. But then again, if you're saying Melchizedek is God, then I, yeah, I don't know about that. But uh, that was a whole other story for another time. Um, good question, though. I guess that uh, i extend this a little bit. Sure, extend it. I guess this is where the, when you go, okay, I mean, uh-huh.
1: The ashes. Uh-huh. Your have yeah, the ashes the ashes have
0: a certain purifying quality because of the lie and everything like that or the yeah. I guess you might
1: have the ashes in there with
0: the, the blood. Well yeah, I think there's more of uh the the meaning in that this heifer was burned as a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering, and the ashes of that was you know, mixed with water for the purification and things like that. But why ashes instead of blood? Even Dr. Kleineck in his commentaries is that, I don't know, it, it, it could just be like he's trying to get the full spectrum of all the purification rites in the Old Covenant, lumping them in together and saying, if all these things could purify for the flesh... How much more will the perfect son of God with his perfect blood um, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, right? He's just making this contrast here, contrast and comparison between the sacrifices of the old covenant and the sacrifice of the new covenant made once for all, which we're going to get into now in the rest of chapter 9. Look good. Good questions. Any other comments, questions? Yeah? This reading through the blood. The blood covering? blood covering.
1: Mm-hmm. I got to thinking that it's interesting that all this was laid out by God and everything else. And yet if you look at all the ancient tribes, mm-hmm. Indians, and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They considered the blood the life Mm -hmm. of the animal, just like it says here. Yeah, but they never had any writing or anything. So that had to have been passed down from original Noah or
0: whoever. Oh, so so you're saying that you know all these other tribes that that have ritualistic sacrifices, they held that the life was in the blood, but they didn't have a written code like. What we have in uh, the Pentateuch and whatnot, the five books of Moses, Uh, and you're saying that's probably probably a holdover from Noah and even down to Seth and the sacrifices made. Possibly, that's very possible. Um, That not not to get on too much of a tangent, but I you know I think you can look and see. uh, I think I've told that story about how I talked to this one girl who was literally pagan. She said all these different pagans have these pantheons, you have like your head god, then you have your god of love, you have your god of war, you have your god of, you know, uh, wine, you have your god of this, you have your god of that, and like they're all pretty much reminiscent of the Greek pantheon, and then you have the Nordic pantheon, and you know, all these other pantheon of gods, they're all very similar, and you can probably say that is a, those are variations on a perversion of the truth that was handed down from the time of Noah and on in the dispersion, the uh, diaspora of the different sons of Noah, uh, that those who fell into the falsehoods, the lies, they carried it on and on and on and on and on. Um, So it's not, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to say that they would also have the understanding that the the life is in the blood either. Um, Another point before we move on, It's interesting you say the life is in the blood. Quick rhetorical point here. What do you think, uh, or rhetorical question here, what do you think the Jews at this time, believing that the Messiah has come in Jesus Christ, but now hearing something like John 6, where he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, in order to be a part of me, right? He says, you know, you must do these things. And then when he says, this is the blood of the new covenant, giving this to good, nice Jewish boys and girls, learning that you never, ever drink the blood or ever eat meat that still has the blood in it. What do you think they're thinking? When they, this is the blood? I have to drink the blood of the Messiah, right? Right? course it's wine, but the blood is present, right? We believe that that's true. It's it's the body and blood of Christ in, with, and under the, that's just how we explain it. There's a mystical union there going on we can't fully grasp. It's a mystery. Jesus said it is, so we believe him, right? Can you imagine what they had to think about that when they had to pass around that cup? This is the blood of Christ.
1: I thought that. I yeah. was five and six years old mm-hmm. thinking I going to do First Communion. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do we do? Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> heavy. <laughs> you,
1: you didn't get to drink the blood, right? The priest was the only one that drank the blood. You just when you did the drink. First Communion, you had
0: uh, either wine or juice. I don't know what it was. I no, thought it was wine. Well, depending on the order of the church at the time if you're in the Tridentine like where they had the Latin Mass you wouldn't have gotten the blood of Christ you could have just gotten the host typically now they give it up to the discretion of the parish and the priest who's administering the sacrament that you can either have the the body and the blood or just the body and we don't do that as Lutherans we say, Jesus said he commanded us, eat, drink you got it, Lord, we'll do it, right? That is what you have told us to do. We're going to do that. It's not, it's not right to withhold one of the elements from the people. But um, one,
1: the Catholic churches that don't distribute the blood, not the wafers that red specks
0: on Some of them might be, be uh, some of them might have the wafer with a little bit of wine because of intinction, where they dip the, or they drop a bit of wine onto the wafer. We also discourage that as well because it's not literally eating or literally drinking. It's another form of consumption. I, you know, this is getting all in the weeds, but it's, good, it's a good question. And we can have more discussions on that, uh, the method and the modes of uh, receiving the sacrament. But what, I'm, what I was really getting at was that, could you imagine these Jewish people hearing, drink the blood of Christ, when their whole life, they, told, they were told, never drink the blood. But, think about it. The life is in the blood. Eating the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ, there is new life in that blood. Pretty fantastic, if you ask me. Um, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, to chapter 9. Verses 15 through 28. Yeah, I know. It's ambitious, but we're going to do our best to get through all of it. And if we have to touch on some of it next time, we will. Okay? But we're going to do our best. I'll read... Um, Are we on a schedule? Well, I'd like to get done before 11, so we're not all in an enclosed space for too long, according to social distancing protocols and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. We're a little on a... Yeah, that's a good excuse. Yeah, we're, we're a little bit on a deadline, yeah. So, yeah, we're a, a little bit on a schedule, um, but we'll see how we go. We'll see how we get there, okay? I'm not going to rush by any means. If we don't get all the way through, we don't get all the way through. I'll finish next time. We'll take our time. Don't worry. Venita, don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to take my time. It's all right. <laughs> all right. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Okay? Therefore he, that is Jesus, right, Christ, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred and that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was, was inaugurated without blood. For when, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses... To all the people he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law almost now to appear in the presence of god on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own for when he for then he would have he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, Waiting for him. So, a lot of good stuff there. Um, further driving home the point of Jesus as our great high priest, right? Um, I'm trying to see here. So, in this, you know, the first part of chapter nine. We uh, talked about how, Well, I don't know if I got, got there, I got there last time I know that Jesus is our high priest, that in the divine service, we uh, receive what he gives in his body and his blood, right? That he presents himself as the great high priest, and with his blood, he makes a full atonement for our sins, And he is a mediator of a new covenant. And it's interesting when they're talking about will, right? There's a will that's involved here. And there's some legal... legal explanations here. And he's kind of using this um, play on words. Because in the Greek, the word for testament is diatheke. And that is also another meaning for will like a last will and testament right a, new, a covenant made that is binding and actionable upon death right and it's interesting here um, that he says therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood but it was a foreshadow, right? It was a type and shadow of what was to come in Christ. Um, I'm trying to see here that. Hmm. Oh, I'm just trying to see here points. So there's there's this connection here between Moses and Jesus, right? Moses was the first mediator, if you will, of the the old covenant. Um, And that was well within the bounds of the law because he was a Levite, right? Um, And he established the new covenant by ordaining um, his brother Aaron as the... High priest and his sons as well. Right? Um, let's see if there are any questions though, I'll ask you all. Any questions about this? It's pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> pretty straightforward. Really not. And that's the beauty of it is that there's no real ambiguity, but there is this contrast and comparison between Moses and Jesus. Moses brought in the first covenant. Jesus now completes uh, the promises made by God in his new covenant. What do y'all think, though, about... Verse 26, the last half there. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Is that a little strange how to put that like that? The end of the ages. What does that mean? What do y'all think? Oh, really? those words. What does it say? It says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Right. No, no, no. I was, I was on verse... Uh, verse 26... Yeah, just a little ahead of that. That was, that was verse 28. Verse 26, uh, the last half. Mine says, as the um, English Standard Version says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does the King James say? Right, so even then, the King James says it in a very interesting way, at the end of the world, the, um, in this context, it's about all ages. right, and in this one it says the end of the ages, so it's, it's, it's a, uh, let me see if I can find here in the Greek. Right, so what is, what is he getting at, though? What is the end of the age, the end of the world?
1: Judgment.
0: Well, okay. Yeah, that's very interesting you say that. Um, because there was a judgment that took place. Um, there was a judgment that took place when Christ was crucified. Right? Right? Um, yeah, in the Greek, it's more, it's, it's more correct to say the end or the completion, the end, the perfection, the end of the ages. Um, King James took a little liberty there to say the end of the world. But we still get the understanding, right? The end of all that we know. How was there the end of the ages in the crucifixion of Jesus? Have you thought about that? Or is that that kind of thought-provoking? How is it... So he's he's literally talking about what? He's talking about... um, There's the sacrifice of himself, which is the sacrifice that he made on the cross, right? How is that, him appearing once for all at the end of the ages... To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It ended an era <laughs> okay. when he, when he died and rose again and started another era. So those ages were
1: gone away and a new era came in, which
0: right. was Christianity, I guess. Right. So so okay, so there's there's an understanding here it's this very interesting sort of paradoxical thought of now and not yet, right? We as Lutherans love paradoxes. Saint and sinner and now and not yet, right? That in the crucifixion of Jesus, what was that the end of? Deservedly life. Right, the end of death. The end of suffering, but how can that be when life continued on? Life went on. People still suffered. People still died. In
1: purgatory.
0: purgatory? <laughs> we're not. We're. We're not going to get into that today. Um, begin the new hope of salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think, I think I showed y'all this. No, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to get y'all to think about what he's getting at with the end of the age. The end of the ages. Because typically we do think, like Peggy said, you know, Judgment Day, the end of the world, when Christ will return, that... But the end of the age for us is when we die. Well, okay.
1: Everybody that's ever died from the beginning on, that was the end of their age. And they were judged at that point. Their future, their salvation was already determined. There's no way of saving them after that. If they were committed. But on the final day, Christ came to fulfill the Old Testament requirements, so that we all could be saved. And all we had to do was believe on Him. We didn't have to perform all the ritual sacrifices and everything
0: else. Okay, so we're getting a little off point here. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is. You're, you're, you're right that the end of the age for us, personally, is our death. That in the end, that you know, judgment will come, that sort of thing. But the thing is, is that what he's getting at, I believe, in Hebrews, is that um, Jesus' death occurred in time. It was a literal historical event, Right? It was it was an actual event that occurred in time, and it came at the what this this says at the end of the ages. Really, it's more appropriate to say the completion of the ages. The uh, the Greek says um, the sunteleia ton ionon, which means like. The soon, the coming together, telea, which means telos, which is the end, the completion, the perfection. And when Jesus was on the cross, what were his last words according to John's gospel? It is finished. It is finished. Tetelestai comes from the same root word. You can translate that as it is... Uh, you, you can translate that in the most common way... It is. It is finished. You can also say it is completed. It is perfected in what Christ has done, once and for all. Once and for all. I think that when I first got here uh, last year, which it's hard to believe, I've only I've been here already a year. It's not flown by, but I think on the whiteboard either on Sunday or Tuesday or something like that. I was drawing this, this this diagram. I don't have a whiteboard here, so you have to just kind of pretend. But we can use the symbol of the cross here as the reference point, because the diagram can contain the cross. On one side, you have creation, right? You have creation, you have the fall, you have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, you have uh, Seth, Noah... Moses, everything going on and on and on. And everything, you know, um, looks toward with the establishment of the old covenant. Everyone, even in back in Genesis three, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Everyone, every faithful person was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They were looking forward to the end that would come to this horrible existence of death and decay and strife and pain. They were looking forward to that day. That day came when Christ died, when he carried the full weight of sins for the whole world, that were sacrificed, his blood was shed, and uh, his blood was poured out for the sins of the world, even going back to the beginning. And now, they looked forward to that day. And when it was fulfilled, the time after that, which way are we looking now, in this new age of Christ? Christ we're always looking back. We're always looking back at what He has done for us. We're always looking to the cross and looking forward for when He will return. Right? That His death and His resurrection were a sure sign of the end. That in the last, on the last day, He will return to fulfill and bring to perfect completion all that was won on that day on the cross. Does that make sense? It's kind of like basically the cross is the culmination of all time. So it's that central high point of right. all our time before and after. Yeah. All time and all ages look to the cross. They should. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Well, I was going to I think sometimes we get tempted to. and that resurrection, but if Christ isn't on that cross, then our lives get sidetracked very, very quickly. That's how I look at it. Yeah. Yeah, like, especially now, (sighs) I've been seeing way too many things on Facebook about, you know, the rapture and the end of times. These things are coming. We can can have some discussions about the rapture if you want. I'm not going to get into it now, but I will say that the rapture is not going to happen. Um, I'll just throw that out there right now. It's not gonna happen like they talk about, like on Left Behind or whatever it is, where people will just be gone and then, you know, we'll have we'll have the second, third tribulation, all these different things, this dispensationalist understanding. No. What's going to happen at the end of the age, and y'all probably already know this, I think y'all studied Revelation before I got here, that what's going to happen at the end of the age is that Christ will return with a cry of command, with a shout of victory, and it will all be done. It's over, right? There's no more battles to be won. The battle has, the battle and the war, it has all been won in Christ crucified for our sins. That now in this time of turmoil, turmoil, And I think it's just going to get worse before it gets better Uh, with all the craziness happening in major cities and the political turmoil and strife. All this stuff is just going to keep on churning. And it's not that we shouldn't be upset by it, because it is upsetting. But we shouldn't be so troubled as to think that this is both bigger than Christ can handle, than God can handle, And we shouldn't think that, you know, on the last day, all of it will just be wiped away. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And not because we are just kind of taking God's word for it. Not just because, oh, I have faith. But we as Christians have faith in the concrete reality of the crucified and risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that historical event, the culmination of that age on the cross and rising from the tomb and ascending into heaven. All those go together. So I hope that clarifies some things. I hope that, that makes sense of what I was getting at. It's like the, the end of the ages, right? Um, because that's what all the world, all the faithful have been looking at is the culmination of Christ crucified for our sins and resurrected for our justification, right? Okay, um, we're actually running out of time here. We have a few minutes left here. Um, I just want to say real quick, there is an interesting thing. We'll we'll do another recap next time on all this. Um, But it's pretty straightforward, like we talked about. I'm going to call it that we got through the end of chapter (laughs) 9. But we see here that uh, he has appeared once for all. Um, Oh, this is something that's interesting. Think about this. So the last verse in chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are who are eagerly waiting for him. What this was, I thought this was pretty neat. Um, there's, there's an interesting parallel here. That in the temple sacrifice, like, you know, um, this would be During this time, it would still be at Herod's temple. So if you see Herod's temple, you see here um, kind of what he's talking about. And be sure to read these before you come back next time if you have any questions about this. It's kind of interesting, Um, especially whether the Ark was still present or not during that time. Uh, But you see here that when the high priest would go into the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people, what they would do... Um, is that during the time when the high priest appeared before God in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat is, where he would sprinkle the blood for the atonement of the sins of the people, um, the people outside would wait in the anticipation of him coming out so that they could... um, they would wait expectantly for him to reappear and cleanse them from sin and release them and release them from their indebtedness to God for one more year right because this is a yearly thing it was the day of atonement it's like all of our sins have been we've gathered up sins for this whole year we need to be forgiven of these sins so what they so there's kind of a parallel there that Jesus Christ having made the perfect sacrifice on the altar of the cross okay has defeated death made atonement for our sins and he carries his body right his perfect sacrifice into the heavenly place the heavenly place of heaven which is in the greek it's very interesting it's a singular heaven Whereas typically in the Gospels you see the kingdom of the heavens, plural. But when there's the singular heaven there, that's the highest realm. He has taken the perfect sacrifice to the highest realm, to the holy place. And we are like the people of old with the high priest in the temple. After he would go in to make atonement in the Holy of Holies, he would come back out to the people in the same way we are waiting for Christ to come back not to atone for our sins like it says not to deal with sin but to save those who are who are eagerly waiting for him that's kind of neat right the kind of parallel the imagery that would be involved there does that make sense yeah Oh, I don't know. Who knows? Because, well, okay, so the question is, is that, is that why the Jews believe there's a second time for repentance? Yeah. I have no idea. Uh, honestly, when it comes to modern Judaism, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's almost nothing like what would have been celebrated or would have been adhered to in the Levitical covenant you know, in the Judaism that we see in the Bible, it's modernized. It's modernized. It's been it watered has, down. it has been watered down. Yeah, it has been augmented so much by so many different rabbis over the centuries in the Talmud. I mean, there's a pastor I know up in Cleveland who said, you know, I tried to, I tried to place a cop, I tried to place, um, place an order for the Talmud. And yeah, and they said, which one? And which volume? Because there's like almost there's, there's like hundreds of volumes of a certain Talmud, and there's another one too. So it's like you can't just get a book and say, this is the Talmud, and I'm going to look and see what the Jews believe. It's just been interpreted and augmented and everything, because they had to, because what happened after the temple was destroyed? No more temple sacrifices. Got to do something now. Christianity? Now... We're going to keep on doing what we've been doing, which is a pale, pale comparison to what came before. Are you going to say something? I was going to say, is it, is it the Jews that believe that there's going to be a
1: second chance? I thought that was more of a sect
0: of like evangelicals. That's like a dispensationalist idea as well, that when that in the rapture that begins the first, like, depending on who you ask, it's all different that after the rapture, that there's a time of tribulation where there will be a chance for repentance and things like that. We don't believe that. Um, And I'm not gonna get into why we believe it right, or why we don't believe it right now. Um, Suffice it to say that it's much more comforting to know that when Christ returns, He returns for good. That there's not just a rapture where Christ comes secretly comes secretly, and he takes the believers that he knows to be the believers, and then he'll come back later. So wait, you're telling me there's a third coming now? Come on. There's only one time when Christ will return, and that is at the end, to, to proclaim victory over Satan once for all, toss him into the, the lake of fire, and be done with it, right? So there is an end coming. That is the comforting thing. And the end is glorious for those who are in Christ. Yeah.
1: So people believe in the rapture what about all the people that have
0: already died? yeah that's another can of worms um, which I'm not getting into right now which is you know so for the sake of the question they believe in the rapture what about everyone who came before right who weren't around when the Messiah was around so what happened to Abraham what happened to Moses what happened to Noah I don't know. yeah we're not going to get into it Yeah, what happens to them?
1: Yeah.
0: The I don't know. It depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It depends on who you ask, really. All right, that's that's it for today. Um, we're a little over time, but hey, you know what, Benita? we, we took our time. Atta yeah, Boy. We didn't. Adam <laughs> Boy. Thank you. All righty. Well, before we before we uh, end, let's uh, close in our usual way with the Lord's Prayer.